Chapter Twelve of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter Twelve. Mary's Dream. That night and every night until the dust was laid to the dust. Mary slept well, and through the days she had great composure. But when the funeral was over, came a collapse and a change. The moment it became necessary to look on the world as unchanged and resume former relations with it, then first a fuller sense of her lonely desolation declared itself. When she said good night to Beenie and went to her chamber over that where the loved parent and friend would fall asleep no more. She felt as if she went walking along to her tomb. That night was the first herald of the coming winter, and blew a cold blast from his horn. All day the wind had been out. Wildly in the churchyard it had pulled at the long grass, as if it would tear it from its roots in the graves. It had struck vague sounds, as from a hollow world, out of the great bell overhead in the huge tower. And it had beat loud and fierce against the corner buttresses, which went stretching up out of the earth, like arms to hold steady and fast the lighthouse of the dead above the sea which held them drowned below. Despairingly had the gray clouds drifted over the sky, and like white clouds pinioned below the shadows that could not escape, the surplice of the ministering priests and the garments of the mourners had flapped and fluttered as in captive terror. The only still things were the coffin and the church, and the soul which had risen above the region of storms in the might of him who abolished death. At the time Mary had noted nothing of these things, now she saw them all, as for the first time in minute detail, while slowly she went up the stair and through the narrowed ways, and heard the same wind that raved alike about the new grave and the old house, into which latter, for all the bales banked against the walls, it found many a chink of entrance. The smell of the linen, of the blue cloth, and of the brown paper, things no longer to be handled by those tender, faithful hands, was dismal and strange, and haunted her like things that intruded, things which she had done with, and which yet would not go away. Everything had gone dead, as it seemed, had exhaled the soul of it, and retained but the odor of its mortality. If for a moment a thing looked the same as before, she wondered vaguely, unconsciously, how it could be. The passages through the merchandise, left only wide enough for one, seemed like those she had read of in Egyptian tombs and pyramids, a sarcophagus ought to be waiting in her chamber. When she opened the door of it, the bright fire which Beanie undesired had kindled there startled her. The room looked unnatural, uncanny, because it was cheerful. She stood for a moment on the hearth, and in sad, dreamy mood listened to the howling swoops of the wind, making the house quiver and shake. Now and then would come a great gust, and rattle the window, as if in fierce anger at its exclusion, then go shrieking and wailing through the dark heaven. Mechanically she took her New Testament, and, seating herself in a low chair by the fire, tried to read, but she could not fix her thoughts, or get the meaning of a sentence. When she had read it, there it lay, looking at her just the same, like an unanswered riddle. The region of the senses is the unbelieving part of the human soul, and out of that now began to rise fumes of doubt and question into Mary's heart and brain. Death was a fact. 
The loss, the evanishment, the ceasing, were incontrovertible, the only incontrovertible things. She was sure of them. Could she be sure of anything else? How could she? She had not seen Christ rise. She had never looked upon one of the dead, never heard a voice from the other bank, had received no certain testimony. These were not her thoughts. She was too weary to think. They were but thoughts that steamed up in her and went floating about before her. She looked on them calmly, coldly, as they came and passed or remained, saw them with indifference. There they were, and she could not help it. Weariedly, believing none of them, unable to cope with and dispel them, hardly affected by their presence, save with a sense of dreariness and loneliness and wretched company. At last she fell asleep, and in a moment was dreaming diligently. This was her dream, as nearly as she could recall it, when she came to herself after waking from it with a cry. She was one of a large company at a house where she had never been before, a beautiful house with a large garden behind. It was a summer night, and the guests were wandering in and out at will, and through house and garden, amid lovely things of all colors and odors. The moon was shining, and the roses were in pale bloom. But she knew nobody, and wandered alone in the garden, oppressed with something she did not understand. Every now and then she came on a little group, or met a party of the guests as she walked, but none spoke to her, or seemed to see her, and she spoke to none. She found herself at length in an avenue of dark trees, the end of which was far off. Thither she went walking, the only living thing, crossing strange shadows from the moon. At the end of it she was in a place of tombs. Terror and a dismay indescribable seized her. She turned and fled back to the company of her kind. But for a long time she sought the house in vain. She could not reach it. The avenue seemed interminable to her feet returning. At last she was again upon the lawn, but neither man nor woman was there, and in the house only a light here and there was burning. Every guest was gone. She entered, and the servants, soft-footed and silent, were busy carrying away the vessels of hospitality and restoring order, as if already they prepared for another company on the morrow. No one heeded her. She was out of place and much unwelcome. She hastened to the door of entrance, for every moment there was a misery. She reached the hall. A strange, shadowy porter opened to her, and she stepped out into a wide street. That, too, was silent. No carriage rolled along the center. No footfare walked on the side. Not a light shone from window or door, save what they gave back of the yellow light of the moon. She was lost, lost utterly, with an eternal loss. She knew nothing of the place, had nowhere to go, nowhere she wanted to go, had not a thought to tell her what question to ask if she met a living soul. But living soul there could be none to meet. She had nor home, nor direction, nor desire. She knew nothing that she had lost, nor of anything she wished to gain. She had nothing left but the sense that she was empty, that she needed some goal and had none. She sat down upon a stone between the wide street and the wide pavement, and saw the moon shining gray upon the stone houses. It was all deadness. Presently, from somewhere in the moonlight, appeared, walking up to her, where she sat in eternal listlessness, the one only brother she ever had. She had lost him years and years before, and now she saw him. He was there, and she knew him. But not a throb went through her heart. He came to her side, and she gave him no greeting. "'Why should I heed him?' she said to herself. "'He is dead. I am only in a dream. This is not he. It is but his pitiful phantom that comes wandering hither. 
a ghost without a heart made of the moonlight. It is nothing. I am nothing. I am lost. Everything is an empty dream of loss. I know it, and there is no waking. If there were, surely the sight of him would give me some shimmer of delight. The old time was but a thicker dream, and this is truer, because more shadowy. And, the form still standing by her, she felt it was ages away. She was divided from it by a gulf of very nothingness. Her only life was that she was lost. Her whole consciousness was merest, all but abstract, loss. Then came the form of her mother, and bent over that of her brother from behind. Another ghost of a ghost, another shadow of a phantom, she said to herself. She is nothing to me. If I speak to her, she is not there. Shall I pour out my soul into the ear of a mist, a fume from my own brain? O oh, cold creatures, ye are not what ye seem, and I will none of you. With that came her father and stood beside the others, gazing on her with still, cold eyes, expressing only a pale quiet. She bowed her face on her hands, and would not regard him. Even if he were alive, her heart was past being moved. It was settled into stone. The universe was sunk in one of the dreams that haunt the sleep of death, and, if these were ghosts at all, they were ghosts walking in their sleep. But the dead, one of them seized one of her hands, and another the other— they raised her up to her feet, and led her along, her brother walked before. Thus was she borne away captive of her dead, neither willing nor unwilling, of life and death equally careless. Through the moonlight they led her from the city, and over fields, and through valleys, and across rivers and seas, a long journey. Nor did she grow weary, for there was not life enough in her to be made weary. The dead never spoke to her, and she never spoke to them. Sometimes it seemed as if they spoke to each other, but, if it were so, it concerned some shadowy matter, no more to her than the talk of grasshoppers in the field, or of beetles that weave their much-involved dances on the face of the pool. Their voices were even too thin and too remote to rouse her to listen. They came at length to a great mountain, and, as they were going up the mountain, light began to grow, as if the sun were beginning to rise, but she cared as little for the sun that was to light the day as for the moon that had lighted the night, and closed her eyes that she might cover her soul with her eyelids. Of a sudden a great splendor burst upon her, and through her eyelids she was struck blind, blind with light and not with darkness, for all was radiance about her. She was like a fish in a sea of light, but she neither loved the light nor mourned the shadow. Then were her ears invaded with a confused murmur, as of the mingling of all sweet sounds of the earth, of wind and water, of bird and voice, of string and metal, all afar and indistinct. Next arose about her a whispering, as of winged insects talking with human voices, but she listened to nothing and heard nothing of what was said. It was all a tiresome dream, out of which, whether she walked or died, it mattered not. Suddenly she was taken between two hands, and lifted, and seated upon knees like a child, and she felt that someone was looking at her. Then came a voice, one that she never heard before, yet with which she was as familiar as with the sound of the blowing wind. And the voice said, "'Poor child!' Something has closed the valve between her heart and mine. With that came a pang of intense pain, but it was her own cry of speechless delight that woke her from her dream. End of chapter 12, Mary's Dream 
Recording by Jean Bascom, Potomac, Maryland.